congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our God's word to us this morning. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. On the way to Jerusalem, he, that is Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so ends the, God's, uh, the reading of God's word for us this morning. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Lord, as we come to your word, we are all too aware that left to ourselves, we would never understand nor submit or even benefit from your word. We need your spirit. We need your grace. We need your help. And so we ask that you would be with us and among us, that you would open up your word to us and grant to us understanding. And most importantly, that you would grant us faith in and obedience to this most precious word we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think 2 Kings 6 is one of those passages in the Bible that kids love because it captivates them and their imagination when they hear it. It records for us this episode where the king of Syria had been trying time and time again to to attack Israel and every time he was foiled. And it turns out it was because the Lord was revealing to the prophet Elijah, Elisha, Elijah's uh, successor, what the king of Syria was going to do, and Elisha would just in turn tell the king of Israel what was going to happen and they could prepare. The king of Syria naturally assumed there must be a traitor in his midst because Israel constantly knew what he was about to do before he ever did it. And his his men yelled out, no, no, it's not us, it's Elisha, he's a prophet, and the Lord keeps telling him what's happening. And so the king of Syria decided to take care of this once and for all, and he sent his army, his chariots, his horsemen. And as they drew near to Elisha, Elisha's servant cries out in fear, certain that death is upon them. And then Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I'll bet you kids, do you remember what happened next? You probably do. Elisha prayed 
that the Lord would open his servants' eyes to see what was going on around them, to see the unseen. And the Lord did, and as he did, the servant was able to see on the hills and the mountains around them, angels all coming to their aid. An entire army. Now they had been there the whole time. Elisha knew they were there, but they couldn't be seen with the natural eye. They could only be seen by those whom the Lord enabled to see. Every child who reads that immediately asks, so are there angels surrounding us? How great would that be if the Lord would allow our eyes to see the unseen? Now, I think there's a parallel to another subject in the Bible, and it's in our passage, and it's the kingdom of God. The Pharisees bring it up in chapter, sorry, in verse 20. They want to know when God's kingdom will come. God's kingdom is, is his perfect rule over his people. And it was, it's been anticipated since the days of Abraham. God said that kings would come from Abraham's line and that they would rule over his people. They would punish their enemies and that eventually all the nations of the world would come and be blessed through them. The prophets foretold the day when this would be fulfilled through the Messiah, when he would bring his rule to his people. And the Pharisees are saying, when's this going to happen? When's this going to be fulfilled? This is not the first time God's kingdom has been mentioned in the book of Luke. In fact, it's been mentioned 26 times so far. The book of Luke opened with, with an angel telling Mary that Jesus would, the one being born to Mary would rule over an eternal kingdom. Jesus preaching in the book of Luke is constantly characterized as proclaiming the kingdom. And Jesus has told us that his kingdom will require absolute submission. And he's told us four things about that kingdom. He's told us that its presence is imminent, that that the generation alive in his time will see its arrival. He says it will start small and eventually grow to fill the entire earth. He says it belongs to the weak and to the lowly, and that it's demonstrated through the healing of the sick. And it's these last two things that, that it's given to the weak and the lowly and it's demonstrated in the healing of the sick that help us to see that, that whether the, the Pharisees realize it or not, the answer to their question is, is connected to what he's just done with these ten lepers. And that's what we're going to see today. As Jesus answered them, he makes it clear that, that much like the, the angels in Second Kings, Not all will be able to recognize the kingdom's appearance. That the kingdom belongs to all who trust in Jesus, and it's only visible to the eyes of faith. It belongs to those who trust in Jesus, but it's only visible to those whom God enables to see it. 
And the simple reality is, is that we have a hard time recognizing God's kingdom precisely because it's not what we think we want. We want a kingdom, first of all, without a king, where we don't have to bow down and surrender. And we also want a kingdom without a cross. We want victory without cost. And Jesus confronts both of those desires and misunderstandings in our passage this morning. So that's what we're gonna, we're gonna look at while we look at the healing of the ten lepers and the question uh, of the Pharisees that follows. So on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus passed near Samaria. Now Samaria was, was hated because it was populated by half-breeds. And, and I know that sounds like a, a, a mean term, but you have to understand the background here. So while in exile in, in, in Assyria, there's a time where Israel is taken into captivity. They were conquered by the Assyrians, and they were taken up, and they dwelt in Assyria. And while they were there, many of the Jews did something the Bible forbid. They, they married the Assyrian captors. And so for the Jews who didn't intermarry, these who did, these who, who intermarried with the Assyrians, they were worse than Gentiles. Because they were traitors. And so when they came back from exile, when they came back to the promised land, the Samaritans were neither really Gentiles and they weren't really Jews. And so they were hated. And as Jesus comes near to Samaria, ten lepers come and they stand at a distance. That's because leprosy was contagious. By law, they were not allowed to, to draw close to everyone else. It was the original social distancing. And, and so they stood some way off and they called to Jesus. And they called him Master. Now so far, and in the rest of Luke, in the entire book, it's only the disciples who call Jesus Master. The Pharisees, they can't bring themselves to call him that. They'll call him teacher, but never master. Teacher acknowledges that, that Jesus might have something useful to say. We, we hear this all the time today, don't we? I think Jesus was a good teacher, or I agree with Jesus' basic teachings, this, this kind of vague idea. But master? Master means he's in charge. That he must be obeyed. That he has authority over me and that I need to submit to him. Now we all want help, but none of us wants to bow our knee. We want a helper, but we don't want a king. Remember that phrase in the book of Judges? There was no king in the land and everyone did as was right in his own eyes and we all think, Actually, that kind of sounds a little good. Uh, No one telling me what to do, making my own rules, charting my own course, being true only to myself. kind of like that. But, But here's the problem. A savior who is not a king is no savior at all. If he can't rule you, then he can't, he certainly can't rule over whatever's ruining your life and afflicting you. If he's no more powerful than you are, if he can't claim your allegiance, then how is he going to deliver you from whatever you can't conquer? 
If there's something more powerful than you in your life, and he's not more powerful than you, there's no deliverance. See, the Pharisees wanted a ruler who could conquer the Roman oppressors, but who would submit to them. It's the genie delusion, right? We all we all picture this genie who is more powerful than everyone else but must obey me. A powerful force that somehow I can rule. That's the kind of God people want, but no such God exists. And the lepers understood this. They need someone who's, who's more powerful than their leprosy that afflicts them and that they can't conquer. Someone who can do that is surely worthy of their allegiance and their submission. Someone who can do that is truly a ruler. So they gladly call him master. Because if he's not a master, then he offers no hope. And they need a ruler. They need a master. And they're not afraid to say so. There are debates today about whether or not the Bible allows you to know Jesus as Savior but not as Lord. And it's a ridiculous question. If he isn't Lord, if he's not Master, how could he ever save you? See, the Bible's clear on this point. Every knee will bow to him. The only question that's not up for debate is when. It'll either be in this life as a follower or in the next as an enemy. And these ten lepers, they decide it's better to acknowledge this now than to wait. When they saw Jesus, they saw power and they saw authority and they saw hope and salvation. And so they asked him for mercy Verse 13. And he cleansed them. And he sent them to the priest. Because the priest had authority to verify that they were truly and really cleansed and healed. He he wanted there to be no mistake for no 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 one to think that this was merely an illusion or, or that he was you know a snake oil salesman. They, when the priest declared that these lepers were truly healed, his authority would be vindicated. His power to save would be undeniable. There would be no doubt that he was truly king. But even before they arrived at the priest, their cleansing became undeniable. And these ten knew beyond a doubt that they had encountered someone truly different. Someone more powerful than they had ever met. Someone more powerful than the leprosy that afflicted them for years. This was no mere man. There was no possible way to confuse Jesus for a genie who could be controlled. He was not obeying them. They were not in charge. He had freely given them a gift. And one of them understood what that meant more than the other nine. There's only one thing you can do when you're given a gift that you don't deserve. When you're shown kindness by one who could just as easily destroy you, you you bow down and you give thanks. 
And he praises God, verse 15. He prostrates himself right, right before the Lord and he says, thank you. Because he gets that Jesus is more than just a good teacher. He gets that, yes, he's a savior, but he's so much more. He is the king above all kings. But even that is not enough. Because if nature itself obeys his voice, then he must be God. And this Samaritan, this this non-Jew, comes and he bows at Jesus' feet. And as he does, the prophets and all their prophecies are fulfilled and of the coming of the kingdom that they foretold when the nations would come and bow and be blessed at the Messiah's feet. And that means that the kingdom promised to Abraham, promised through the prophets, has come. And that this Samaritan, this leper, this outcast, this this nobody has been received into it. And Jesus praises him. He tells him it's because of his faith that he's been healed. Jesus says it's not a matter of ethnicity. It's not a part of being a. It's not a uh, being a part of the right tribe that matters. It's not a matter of being a good and moral, upstanding member of society. That his subjects, his citizens, are those who recognize him to be the king, and willingly surrender and bow before him. But make no mistake, what's being signified through this event, what's being signaled, that long-awaited kingdom has come. And that's what makes what Jesus says, uh, what, what Jesus says next so surprising. Because you can see that the Pharisees are, are making the connection. All the pieces are starting to align and they can't deny the implications. The kingdom is coming. So they ask the obvious question, when will we see it? And there are so many assumptions tied to that. The people, they were looking for a kingdom uh, and as they were looking for it, they believed it would bring certain things. They believed that the Messiah would appear on the stage and that he would conquer the uh, Rome and its leader, Caesar, in the same way that, that uh, Moses had conquered Pharaoh and the Egyptians years before. They were looking for military might. They were looking for, for political power. They were looking for cultural influence. And they believed that the kingdom would be visible, powerful, unmistakable, and irresistible. And can you blame them? Isn't that what we want? Don't we keep wondering why God allows certain people to be in seats of power? Don't we want the church to be the power in the world that must be recognized and acknowledged? (laughs) Who wants a kingdom that no one notices? Who wants an army that doesn't stop those who would harm you? Which would you rather have? A kingdom that can't be missed or one that's imperceivable? A kingdom like the one sought by the Pharisees or or one that resembles the cross of Christ? 
How often do we think that following Jesus should mean protection from suffering, pain, illness, persecution, anything else we don't want? Sometimes we're like the generation of the judges wanting no king so we can do whatever we want. Sometimes we're like the generation after the uh, the next generation which says, okay, we'll take a king, but we want one like all the nations. We want someone who's strong and powerful and handsome. Someone people notice and fear. We want someone like Saul, not someone like David. And we delude ourselves into thinking that somehow we'll be able to control him. That others will need to fear him, but not us. But what does Jesus say? He says in verse 20 that his kingdom will come in a way that few will notice. And that's because it's not what people are looking for. It's not what they want. And it can only be seen through the eyes of faith. If you want to understand what Jesus' kingdom looks like in this world, you have to look at the one place in this world where he wore a crown. On the cross. The crown he wore had no glory as the world sees. It was woven out of thorns. That's what his kingdom looks like in this world. And it's unattractive to a watching world. It's repulsive to those who think that God's job is to protect us from all trials and affliction. For those who are looking for military might, political power, and and cultural influence, it's the last thing we would identify with a king or a kingdom. But what does the Bible tell us? It's by his wounds that we were healed. That we have redemption through his blood. That what man meant for evil, God meant for good. God's kingdom is seen much more in the things it accomplishes. First and foremost, salvation. Not for just for Jews, but for Gentiles as well, and even for Samaritans. God's kingdom is like those angels on the mountainside in 2 Kings 6. Invisible to the human eye, and yet present in their midst only seen by those eyes whom the Lord opens. But invisible doesn't mean any less real. In fact, in some ways, it's more real. Because what what we're talking about is something that is eternal and unshakable. A kingdom that will have no end. It's for that reason that God's kingdom is much more interested in saving people like this Samaritan leper than it is in storming the gates of Rome or Afghanistan or even Washington, D.C. Because God's more interested in your eternity than he is in the politics of nations. Because God stops and he gives his full attention To those who cry out, Master, 
have mercy on me. Regardless of whether they're powerful, known people, or little unknowns. And what could be greater news than that? Just as Jesus told that leper that his faith made him well, he declares to you today that his kingdom belongs to those who place their faith in him. They are members of an eternal and unshakable kingdom. But make no mistake, faith is an act of total surrender. Faith looks to Jesus and it says, Master, there is none who can save me, no other than you. And so I place my life in your hands and I surrender all. Because faith understands that there is no Savior who is not also a king. And it understands that there is no kingdom without a cross. And so faith places its trust in a king who wore a crown of thorns and tells you to take up your cross and follow him. A king who assures you that if this world hated him, surely it will hate those who follow him as well. And yet says to you in the midst of that, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Through faith and through faith alone, we find healing, we find life, and we find citizenship in God's kingdom. And while it's primarily seen by faith, the Lord does offer us a way to make it visible this morning. In the Lord's Supper before us, through visible means, through bread and wine, our Lord first reminds us of of the price by which he conquered the enemies and bought our redemption. And then the king turns and says to us, his subjects, come and dine at a king's table. I prepare it for you in the midst of your enemies, a place to be refreshed and renewed before you go back out, knowing that if you sup at my table, you are my subjects and I am your king. And none can truly hurt you, not even death itself, for even death must surrender you at my voice. And that is the greatest comfort there is. And so let us come. Come to the Lord's table and be reminded of our king and how great he truly is. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward. And please join me in prayer. Merciful Savior, mighty King, we bow before you. We confess that we think we want a God we can control, but a God we can control cannot save us. We need a true king whom nature must obey, to whom death itself must surrender. And we find such a king in you, and in you we find salvation. Teach us to see the unseen. Teach us to desire the kingdom you offer, to esteem the eternal over the fleeting, the heavenly over the earthly. For in these alone can we find true peace. Amen.